While you're being seated, take your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. Last month, the month of January, we uh, had a four-part series that we called Gone Fishing. We talked all about fishing in regards to evangelism. And now we are going to start a new series with a fisherman, Simon Peter himself. We're going to go through 1 Peter all the way to Easter. We're going to celebrate Easter. Then after Easter, we're going to take up 2 Peter. And so today we're going to begin in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. I was reading this week a book that was written to pastors about preaching. And they said often what we do as pastors, we try to get people excited about the text. Try to hype up the text and what we're going to talk about. And he said, we, don't, we should not get excited about the text because the pastor is excited about it. It doesn't make it better because the pastor is really encouraged by what he's reading. We should be excited about the text simply because it is God's Word. And we need to really take it as God's Word. And so what I want to do, I was reading Nehemiah chapter 8, and Ezra was the scribe, and as, what Ezra would do is he'd go up on a platform, he would stand up, and it said he'd take the book of the scroll and he'd open it up. And everybody would stand and he'd read the book of the scroll. said he would then explain it to them and their job was to do the best they could to understand it. So that's what we're going to do today. Nothing fancy. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 12. So stand up. And you can follow along if you want, but we're just going to recognize this is God's word. Starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10. Concerning the salvation of prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched, inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were serving you the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. 
Father, the angels long to look in what we know. That's hard to believe. Actually, everything I read is hard to believe. I think a lot of us hear it. It's the Bible. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do. But God, this is reality. It is the way things are. And so help us, God, to understand it and make sense of it so we can apply it to our life. And then so we can live differently. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Peter wrote this book, Simon Peter, the Apostle. Simon Peter grew up in the the, uh, north shores of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. He, uh, he He was a relatively rich guy until Jesus called him, and he, uh, Jesus put him to work. So if you read the Gospels, basically what happened is he started following Jesus. He's a disciple. He was the first preacher in Jerusalem. And then he became, over time, the apostle sent to the Jews. And then as Peter got older, he made it all the way up to Rome. So he went from a fisherman to an apostle up to Rome. One of my favorite stories about Peter is him and John were preaching, and people were coming to know Christ. But he was making the Jews of the Sanhedrin mad. I mean, they were mad. So they brought him, Peter, and John in, in the front of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and they told him not, not to preach Jesus anymore, to be quiet, to stop it. And here's what Acts says about it. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they're just fishermen, guys with calluses on their hand and dirt between their fingernails, you know, regular guys, they were astonished. Why were they astonished? Well, because this guy, when you're go- we're going to read First Peter, this guy knows theology. This guy knows Jesus. And the reason why is they recognize they'd been with Jesus. I'll tell you what, if If anything could be said about our church or even myself, that's what I would like to be known as. Chris Weeks, people at Kent City Baptist Church, they they had been with Jesus. And that's why we're going to read this book because Peter was an intimate. Peter knew our Lord and Jesus was always on his lips. Actually, the first 12 verses that we just read, seven times the name Jesus Christ or the Spirit of Christ is mentioned in the first 12 verses. He loves Jesus. I think that's our job, is to fall in love with Christ. And hopefully that's what happens more and more through this series. The purpose of this book, Peter wrote it, is because people were dispersed. The church was dispersed through northern Turkey. Here's northern Turkey, which is called Asia Minor. And he is going to send a letter. It's like a circular letter. The book of 1 Peter was written. He said it's actually a brief letter. It's not really that brief, but he wrote a brief letter for the purpose of having it go from one city. So it started up there in Pontus, goes down to Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, and all the way back up to Bithia. And it says that in verse 1. So he's sending this to those people. They would get the letter, write it. They'd have their own copy. Then they'd send somebody to bring it to the next church. The church here are people that are Jews and Gentiles that are scattered in this area, like salt being scattered on meat. We are called to be salt and light. And that's who he's sending this to. And 1 Peter 5.12, if you go to, go to the very last chapter, 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 12, it's giving us the purpose of why this is written. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, 
I have written briefly to you. So through this man, Salvinus, he, he wrote to the people. It's a brief letter. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he's writing this letter because the people scattered in this region were being persecuted. Chapter 4 says they were suffering for their faith. And so he wrote this letter so they would stand firm. So in a way, this letter is for us too. As you and I try to be Christians, this letter is to help us stand firm in the grace of God. That means be strong. We don't, we don't need to be wimpy Christians and being embarrassed for following Jesus and you know, being the nice Christians that go everywhere. We, we need to stand strong and be proud of our, of our Lord. That's the reason we're studying First Peter. He begins by um, describing this group of people he's writing to. Look in verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means I'm, he's sent by Jesus to those who are elect exiles. That word exiles in other versions is where we get aliens. Some versions use strangers. I want to call this group of people chosen strangers. I think it describes them the best. These are chosen strangers. By chosen, chosen in verse 1 means they're elect. God elected them. Before time began, God planned in advance who would be his. But before we get into what I would say is a theological debate on sovereignty and free will, if you want to get into that, we talked about it in Titus. I believe Peter is more referencing what happened in the Old Testament to the nation Israel. Moses came down out of the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And as he came down, he read in Exodus 19, 4, 6, and said, you are, talking to God's people Israel, my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom for me, holy nation, priests. So Peter's referencing that. Israel was pulled out of all the nations to be God's own people. And now he's saying, you church, you guys, you are chosen for exactly the same purpose. Go to chapter 2, verse 9. Look at what he says. This is written to you. Chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what Peter's doing is he's making reference to the Old Testament and saying, just like the Jews were pulled out to be a chosen people, you are a called out people for God. You are the new covenant. What's fascinating about this, if we go to, back to chapter 1, who did this choosing? And remember, Peter's just a normal fisherman. Nothing fancy about him. But he's going to go into Trinitarian doctrine. Look at verse 2. He begins with the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ through the sprinkling of blood. So what he's saying is you were chosen because God the Father, before time began, foreknowledge, before time began, chose you. God the Father, it's called the decree of God. Then the Holy Spirit is sent as his administrator. He makes active God's decree. So he's the one that actually 
works in the lives of the people God chooses. He does that through enlightening you. He does that through the revelation of the written word, through men to write down this word. He does that through wooing. That means causing you to want him. And he does that through conviction, for you realizing you need him. So God decrees it, plans it. The Holy Spirit carries it out. And Jesus is the one who purchased it through his blood. It says sprinkling of blood, which it has two references throughout Peter to that. In chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about purchasing you with the precious blood of Christ, the ransom price, meaning you were destined for hell. You were doomed in your sin. You did not deserve to have salvation, so, but Jesus bought you out of it. He ransomed you. And the price for you is his blood. And we're going to talk about that. We have here, we have juice, which represents the price that paid for you. You were ransomed. With blood, but also the blood also purifies, makes us clean, so that we now can be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that blood isn't just something that happened in the past justification; it is a sanctifying agent, which makes you more and more like Him. So God did the choosing, and then. We now have a responsibility to obey that calling. Look at what it says at the end of verse 2. It says, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Who is to obey? The chosen exiles. The chosen strangers. And so there's a, what I would say, there's this big debate on, does God do the choosing or do I respond? Yes. It's like an airplane. So an airplane cannot fly on one wing. needs both. We both need to know that God has, before time begun, chosen you. But you also need to respond to his calling. You do have a responsibility. And so in order for the theological plane to fly, they're both true. And you might say, but how does that make sense? I have no idea. And if you do, there's something wrong with you. There really is. I mean, honestly, when you talk to people who think they have it all figured out, it's arrogance. It's arrogance, plain and simply, because God is, God is above. He's infinite. He's eternal. We're limited and finite. And the only reason we're eternal is because we live in him and have our being in him, so he allows us to be eternal. Our eternality is based on him, not based on ourselves. So if anybody says, I'm an eternal creature, not in and of yourself, you're actually finite. That's, why am I getting into that? I have no idea. Let's keep talking. Let's keep talking. So, chosen means God has chosen you. And if you are chosen, you will obey. And we call that faith. The second thing is he calls them strangers. And I think this is the gist of the whole point of this book, is we are chosen, but we're, we're, we're to be different. We're to be strange. Who's laughing back there, Darcy? Yeah, you are strange, Darcy. And I think that's why she's laughing. She recognizes that fact. And Julie, don't laugh at your sister. So strangers, that's a problem. Here's, here's, how, here's what this means. Because we have a new allegiance, allegiance 
allegiance, which what allegiance means is we have new loyalties. We have a new king. His name is in verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't, don't make light of that title, Lord. I think we make light of that title. That means master. So we have a new allegiance. We no longer... We no longer run to the culture and the trends. We now run to the calling we've received. So we're a new kind of people. We really don't fit in this world. We are in the world, but not of the world. John 17. Where we once felt at home with the customs and cultural values, they should no longer have sway over us. They shouldn't pull us like they used to. The writer Joel Green says, 1 Peter is addressed to people who no longer belong. If Jesus was despised and rejected, why are you surprised you're treated like a nobody? You're a stranger. That's the whole point. They who once participated in the mainstream of Greco-Roman society are now loyal subjects to a new king, And they are on the fringes of that old society. In the same way we are too. So I would say as a result of our new allegiance, expect social ostracism and expect animosity. Luke says it like this. Luke says, blessed are you when you are excluded, reviled, and you have your name spurred on account of me. We don't like to say that, but that's what Luke says. People will call us strange. And if you've ever really lived for Jesus for any amount of time, if you've ever really tried living for Jesus for any amount of time, you'll feel this pressure from the world. Try being a pastor who once was cool and goes to a school reunion. You feel like you're Mork from work. Like, who, what happened to you? Just say, nanu, nanu. That's all. Have you, if you're from the 80s, you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you think I'm strange. That's the point. We're strange. All of us. You have been there. You have been a stranger. When, when you know that people don't know how to talk around you, you've been there. You know when you're, like, you're with the people and they swear and they say, oh, I'm sorry. Like, why is that a, f- you're not accountable to me. I don't, oh, I'm sorry. I might have hurt your ear. Well, God's listening. Have you, you felt that. You felt that when you find out later, later there's a party and, you weren't invited because you just you just wouldn't understand. It just you just don't belong. You've been there when people are more excited than you about pursuing pleasures and football and entertainment and fantasy. Where yeah, it's fun, but it doesn't define you anymore. And people no longer under, understand why. Somebody actually come up to me, and I'm talking, I'll talk about the Super Bowl in a minute, what makes me mad. And the person said, you know what makes you mad? It's because you're a Cleveland Browns fan. You'll never be satisfied. Thank God I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. Maybe that's what God did to me to get me saved. I, it used to, if the Browns won on Sunday, it would make my whole week. If they lost, I would be depressed. My dad said, what's wrong with you? The Browns lost. It's weird. Isn't that weird? But we, all, we are like that. We are like that, but if we're called out, we shouldn't let our emotions be, it shouldn't be hooked if my team wins or if my new movie came out. 
You've been there when you don't fudge numbers at work and people are like, come on. Or you don't use derogatory language around the opposite sex or you don't join in mockery or cursing of others. You've been there if you're trying to live for Jesus. Let's face it, Christian, you're weird. You're weird. You're often will be considered a prude, a goody-goody, and strange simply because we should no longer and we shouldn't go just go with the flow. I was reading about somebody writing about the Roman world at the time. Listen to what the Roman world used to be like. It's so different. The Roman world, the time of Peter, practiced sexual experimentation and freedom having many partners. It was accepted and expected. The Roman world would hook up for fun, not thinking there's anything wrong with their sexual escapades. The Roman world loved their wine. They loved the party. They worshipped their perverse gods and goddesses. The Roman world lived for money. They celebrated youth. They ran after pleasure after pleasure, and they considered themselves successful when they had glory. But that's the Roman world, not the American world. Right, things don't change. They don't. So in other words, face it, if you love the name of Jesus and you want to be loyal to him, you are strange. So stranger, I got two pieces of advice that are found in here that are powerful. The first one we find in 3 through 5. Let me read it, and then I'll go through it. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. All right, so this first thing, if you are a stranger, you will often feel like you've been dropped into a forest. Imagine being dropped into a dark forest full of trees. It's, it's kind of getting close to nighttime and it's foggy. That's what a stranger feels like. You're like, you're, I don't belong here. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to survive. I hear weird noises. I, feel, I don't feel like I fit. And often you'll feel that way if you're a stranger in the world. If that's true, here's what Peter says. Look behind you. And look in front of you. Because something happened in the past and something happened in the future that should make you in the middle of this dark woods have living hope. Living hope means I'm going to make it. I'll survive. Not only will I survive, but I will be just fine. So what happened in the past? Verse 3. Verse 3 happened in the past. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's it. And that's enough. It's the greatest event in the history of mankind. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. A man died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, and he rose from the dead. The same spirit that caused him to rise out of the tomb lives in you. So if he rose from the dead, don't you think you'll make it in whatever situation you're in right now? And we have a sure hope that had happened but because of that God has poured in his spirit and made us alive it says here we're born again we're a new nation 
a new people. And in not only that, verse 4, now we have something to look forward to. We have a promise. That promise in verse 4 is an inheritance. That means we have something waiting for us, stored up. It's tangible, it's real, and it's yours. It's just waiting for you when you die. What is that? It's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's heaven. It describes heaven in three ways. Imperishable. That means, you know how like gold or or things will rust down here and moss will destroy clothes? Imperishable means it's it won't happen anymore. It's done. You will ne- never die. This new body you're going to get, it will never grow old. It says it's... um. Undefiled. This is in reference to purity. That means you will never be stuck in your sin and in your temptations and in your anger and in your lust. It's gone. You'll be perfect and pure. A new person. And then it says, and this is my favorite part, it's unfading. It's unfading. The idea of unfading is things aren't degenerating. No longer is the second law of thermodynamics at work. It's actually the opposite. Proverbs says, a person who is saved is like the morning sun that gets fuller to the brightness of day. That's unfading. And it's not just fading away. It means it's growing in strength and beauty and honor. That's what's waiting for us in the future. You will be strong, immortal, and pure. Doesn't that excite you? No. Then what do you want? I want a new car. Do you know the moment you drive your car off, off the lot, it starts fading and it starts crying? It's not worth even what it was. Half the price goes down. It's a waste. I want a new house. My neighbors always have a new house. I want a new house. The moment you get that new house, your kid will spill grape juice on your white carpet. It will happen guaranteed it will start fading chipping falling apart it will i want my sports team to win i'll tell you what and this is what i this is what i hinted at the thing i hate the most about the super bowl here's the thing i hate the most about sports even is the moment the moment the Super Bowl's over. The commentators say, well, who's going to win next year? Oh, I want to wring that guy's neck. <laughs> Can't you just enjoy it just for a second? We speculate. Oh, who's? So all of this time, all of this whole year, we come to one game, and once the game's done, we start talking about it again. You can never enjoy it. Or did you ever plan something for your wife and kids to go on a vacation, and you get on vacation and they are sitting on the shoreline, and the water is lapping up on their toes, and it's 80 degrees, and they say, where are we going to go next year? <laughs> enjoy this! Enjoy it! Can't we enjoy this? This heaven, when you get there, you're going to finally... You're going to finally have everything you ever wanted, and you're never going to ask for anything else again. Finally. And there's a promise. Look at verse 5. is amazing. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. There's a big debate. Can you lose your salvation? Faith means I believe that this guy arose from the dead, that Jesus actually paid for my sins, and that I have heaven waiting. Can you lose it? 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. You're guarded by God's power. You're guarded by God's power. How can God lose anything? Jesus says, you're like a sheep and you're in my hand and I'm in my Father's hand. You're guarded. How can, how can you lose it once you have it, if you're guarded? One writer said, it is safe to conclude by verse 5 that God will accomplish your purpose and you will, in fact, attain that final salvation because we are rescued solely by his power. So we don't have to worry about it. So looking back in the past, do you see it? Do you contemplate it, the empty grave. You look to the, do you see it? Your new body. So in the moment, you'll be okay. Which leads us to, hey, stranger, the second thing you need to do is really understand verse 6 and 7. Listen to verse 6 and 7. This is so important. In this you rejoice, though now, though now, while I'm in the middle of the past and the future, though now, for a little while, a little while, if necessary, and I would say it is necessary, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's how you can put this. Verses 6 and 7. Because you are strange, expect strange things to happen. And if truth be told, strange things happen to everyone, even if they're not strange. And by strange, I'm referring to trials and suffering. I heard the best definition of suffering from a friend yesterday. Trials and suffering. You want to know the definition of suffering? Suffering is the pain I experience when I am not getting what I want. So in a way, we all have different kinds and degrees of trials and sufferings. And in verse 6, you are there now for a little while. It's the way a broken world works. Listen to this. This is book. I got this book. If you guys want to get a great book, I don't get any money back on this. This book's amazing. But listen to what um, it's by. It's a great book. If you want to see it, just come up here later. Kelly, you'd love this book. Anyhow. Here's what this writer writes. If you are suffering or someone close to you is suffering, that is sad. It is. But alas, it is not particularly special. We don't suffer only because politicians are dim-witted or the system is corrupt or because you and I, like almost everyone else, can legitimately describe ourselves in some way as a victim of someone or something. It is because we are born human that we are guaranteed a good dose of suffering. And chances are, if you or someone you love is not suffering now, they will be within five years unless you are freakishly lucky. Unless you are freakishly lucky. In other words, being human means... You suffer. But because we are chosen, now you have to throw chosen in there, this suffering or this strangeness is, is actually and 
intended by God to grow you. In other words, look at it like this. Our present sufferings, according to verse 6, are not to be seen as random happenings. Things that we just can't, God just can't help it. It just gets through the cracks of his almighty sovereignty. He didn't see it coming. They're not random happenings. Nor are they, nor are they punishment for my guilt. When bad things happen, you and I usually say, oh, I'm a bad person. I must have done something wrong. Oh, I'm horrible. Here's what this is saying. Suffering is actually a refining tool used by God for our growth. You could say it like this. Suffering is actually a refining tool by a loving God for our growth. That's what it says in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise. Suffering is actually a refining tool used by a loving God for our growth. Someone wrote this. God does not try his people without reason. God is not caught off guard by anything that comes our way. And God is not a heartless monster twiddling his thumbs while we are wringing our hands in our pain. No, God will only allow trials if they are necessary. And most of the time they are be honest. What do they accomplish? Verse 7, a faith that is genuine. That's their goal. This says suffering is necessary to show you that what you believe is actually not only worth it, but you have it. It's easy to believe when everything goes great. It really is. It's easy to go to church where the preacher says, if you believe strong enough, you get anything you want. It's really easy to believe that message. It really is. It's hard, to, it's hard to stay in there when you don't get what you want. But there is nothing more dear to God. There is nothing more dear to God than our reliance and trust in him during difficult times. That's called faith. And it is impossible to please God without it. Because what faith says is faith says, I trust his character. I think he's good. I love him. I'm going to hang on. Faith is what pleases him more than anything. And if he needs to take away something from you because you have trusted that something above him, he will take it away. Try taking a sucker from a child who's addicted to candy. That's suffering. But I got a steak for you. When my wife takes away my orange peanuts, I get mad. I'm kidding. She doesn't. My daughter Jasmine eats them instead. Anyhow, the question for you is, are you strange? Are you strange? Are you one of the chosen strange ones? And I saw Doug and Sue look at each other, and they both smiled. So they're affirming the other one is strange. The truth of the matter is we all are strange, absolutely. But I guess my question is, are you a stranger? Are you a member of a holy nation that is hard to understand? There's a way to know. He's going to give us a way to know. To me, this is my favorite part of 1 Peter. I've always loved this passage. But the, the, the knowing is subjective. There's objective truth and subjective truth. 
And what he's going to say is there is a subjective way to know if you indeed are one of his people. And subjective means only you know it. When you're in your bedroom by yourself, nobody's around, you know it. And he's going to talk about this in verse 8. It's amazing. Listen to what he writes. He first starts off with the objective truth. Though you have not seen him, meaning God is invisible. He actually is invisible. We don't see him right now. If we did, we'd die because we're not ready to see him. That's objective truth. And if anybody has seen him, don't buy any real estate from that person. They aren't telling you the truth because God's invisible. I Actually, I think his invisibility is one of the reasons we, would, we want answers to prayer so badly because we just want to know, is he real? Is he real? But if you are his, there will be a subjective truth that will tell you he is. And there's three ways your heart will speak to you. If you are a stranger, the first thing is this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. There's really nothing more to say than that. And you know if you love him or not. Like even the name Jesus, it it catches you by surprise, and I love that man. I love him. Second thing it says here is it goes back to that, though you do not see him now, meaning even in this moment of being a stranger in the middle of the woods, though you don't see him now, you believe him. You believe. I trust him. I trust him. I don't get everything I want. Life's hard, but I trust him. And then the third one, which is the strangest one, But this to me is the one that really confirms if you truly are a stranger. You rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. I don't know how to explain it, but there are days that I just am, I have joy. The world could be crashing around me. I'm okay. I'm okay. Not only am I okay, I'm great. I'm great. That's strange. But that's a sign you're a stranger. So are you a stranger? I don't know how to explain as I say this to my, when you become a stranger, what happens, you're no longer, the best way to put it is, is being a stranger doesn't mean you are like this, this slave, the servant. You are an intimate part of his family. When you are part of a family, there are things that that family does that the outside world thinks is strange. Have you ever been part, do you have a strange family? I have a very strange family. A lot of times, we'll, we would go to a restaurant. My dad would just, like I remember this one time, his favorite restaurant was Old English Ice Cream Parlor. We'd walk into Old English Ice Cream Parlor. He'd walk in. All of us kids would follow him. He'd just fall on his face. I don't know why he did that. He's just strange. But we got used to it. We're strange. We're a weird family. And you as a family probably have some strange things too. I know I could tell you Derek strange things, but he'd get very upset. But it's the idea that People watching from the outside don't get it. You have to be insider to get it. In the same way, this love, this faith, this joy makes no sense. But you have it. It's strange. And if you don't think it's that important, this whole idea of having him and Look at verses 10 through 12, because it's saying concerning this salvation, concerning this 
living hope inside of you, this born-again life. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So like Isaiah and Jeremiah, when Isaiah wrote, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He, he wrote it because the Spirit moved him, but he didn't know what he's writing. He's trying to figure it out. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in him was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. And here's the incredible part. They were not serving themselves. So when Isaiah was writing or Moses wrote Genesis, how the you will bruise his heel, he'll crush your head. You know, they didn't get that. And then they realized, this really isn't for me to know. It's for you. You have been given things people have been dying to want to know. Not just people, but keep reading. They were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. That's even more strange. Angels, these beings that are beautiful and above us, don't understand the intimacy you have. They long to look and understand what you have. Sadly, many of us yawn and disregard what we have. 